Hopefully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. This is God's Word. Good evening. There are some worksheets that will accompany our lesson this evening. If you'd like one of those and don't have one, you can raise your hand, and I know that we have some servant-hearted people that will grab them off those back chairs and make sure that you get one. Uh, this would also be a great time to uh, open your Bibles to Colossians, or if you have one of those electronic devices, uh, touch and scroll appropriately to Colossians as we'll be spending uh, time in that book uh, this evening. Anyone else need one of the worksheets? Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we pray that you will receive the honor and the glory that you deserve, and that, you're, that you're worthy of. We pray that we will join your creation in, in, in glorifying and praising you. And Father, we're thankful for the assurance that you've given us, that we can live life with confidence, knowing that we are your people, knowing that you have prepared an inheritance for us. And Father, we want to live worthily, of who you've made us to be. And so we pray, Father, that whenever we, we look at your word and this evening as we look at it, that we will be humble and have those humble, moldable hearts, that we will not impose our will and our understanding, but, but allow your word to shape us. And so we pray for those eyes that see and ears that hear. Father, we acknowledge that we're dependent on you and we need you. And so we pray that you might forgive us. Um, we pray that you might strengthen us according to your mercy and grace as we seek to live and to honor you. Father, be with this congregation. Bless its, its elders, its shepherds, as they seek to lead it. And help us to work together for your glory and honor. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. Mark has been doing a series on Sunday night. Uh, on the book of Colossians. And Mark has done a really great job in, in stepping through um, paragraphs, focusing on what those paragraphs mean for our lives, their significance for us today. Tonight we'll be looking at the letter of Colossians again, but we'll be doing so on a larger scale. We'll be looking at how these different paragraphs come together and provide a flow of thought a flow of thought that gives a message, a message that is as significant today for us here in America as it was for those nearly 2,000 years ago in the city of Colossae. But before we dive into this study, uh, let's consider the nature of roadmaps. Roadmaps purport to tell us to represent what is true about our world. They say there's a road here, <laughs> and if you go there, you should find a road that goes wherever the map is saying. Now, what happens 
when someone who is not sure of how to get to the destination does not have a roadmap or a GPS system and takes off. Well, it's, it's disconcerting for all those involved. Um, have you ever been on one of those family vacations where the driver drove everyone crazy? I was that driver several years ago. Um, we were on a family vacation headed toward the East Coast. And about the time we got out of Texas, um, there was a mutiny in the car. Um, I was forced to stop at a Walmart, I believe it was a Walmart, where I received an early birthday gift. It was a little GPS system to help for the rest of the journey. The point is, a reliable map, whether it's printed on paper or, or displayed on a little screen, can help us navigate toward a goal. And all maps purport to tell us what is there, what we can know, to enable, to enable us to navigate that path to the destination. Now, that's not only true for literal maps, but it's also a metaphor for the maps that we use to navigate life. So what happens when conflicting maps prescribe different paths on how to best live life, on how to best prepare for beyond the horizon of death? And the maps say, one map says go this way, another map says go that way. This is why Colossians is just as important for our lives today as it was for those first century Christians. Because both of us live in a world where there are conflicting voices, divergent roadmaps, calling us to go down different paths. In Paul's day, the, the danger seems to have been there was a message of, of Christ plus some additional philosophy, some, some additional rules. Yes, Christ is good, but you also need to know these rules. You need to have this additional wisdom and, and insight and mysteries along with Christ. And so Paul is going to warn be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. But his warning is also applicable to us today. We need to be wary of anyone who says, well, here's another map other than Christ. Or, even. Here's a map that includes Christ, but here are some other things that are even more important that you should know about and that are necessary for making this journey. What does Paul do? He's writing to a congregation, a church there in Colossae. There is some confusion. They're holding two different sets of maps about how to proceed forward. How do you write? How do you help a church in that environment? Well, Paul's first goal in Colossians involves reassuring us, those who belong to Christ, that Christ is the reliable map to the hope of glory. No additional enhancements are needed. It's not Christ plus something else. It's Christ. And Paul wants us to comprehend the importance of our connection with Christ. Christ provides everything that we need. Just as the, the Garmin provided all the instructions and all the, that I needed to know in order to get to our destination, Paul in 
Colossians is going to say, Christ gives you everything that you need for this journey. You don't need anything else. Now, in order to ensure us that we are on the right path, in order to ensure them that they were on the right path, Paul is going to do something repeatedly throughout this letter. From the very start of it and then throughout it, he keeps pointing to the goal and saying Christ is the path to this goal. Notice the language. Colossians chapter 1, right at the beginning, verse 5. The hope laid up for you in heaven, which you heard about in the message of truth, the gospel. That's right. In the gospel, you heard about the destination, this hope of heaven. It's laid up there. It's waiting for you. He, just a few verses later, verse 12. The Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him. That's what Christ does. He takes us and he, he brings us into the presence of God, holy, blameless. You don't need something else. Colossians 1 verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Chapter 3 verse 2, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. You know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. There's this motivation throughout this letter that says, pay attention to Christ because Christ is providing you the path to this hope of glory, to heaven. But now think with me for a second. Paul is writing to a congregation that has been handed two roadmaps, if you will. One says, Jesus is the way. Another one apparently is going to say Jesus, but it's going to include some other enhancements, some, some secret information, some mystery. And it's going to say there's more treasure on this map than, than with this map that Christ has given. So if you're in a state like that where you've been handed two maps, how do you know which one's more reliable? How do you know who you should go with? Is it this map or, or is it that map? When confusion exists about which map is going to provide the reliable guidance, which map provides an accurate description of reality, of what's really there, that you can count on, how do you identify which is true? Well, Paul anticipates our question by the way that he writes this letter of Colossians. Paul's answer is going to involve anchoring our understanding about Christ's sufficiency. That Christ is all that you need. He anchors it upon the deeper and more profound knowledge regarding God's will and what God is doing. For think about this. If, if God, if, if, the, if the one who has created all things is creating through Christ, if he's placing Christ above all other powers, if God and there's nothing greater than God, if God's will and His work is through Christ, then there can be no genuine challenge to Christ. There, there can be nothing else that is going to be a better way than Christ if God is working through Christ. And so before Paul digs into this letter, he prays for them. He prays for them, he prays for us to grow in our knowledge of God's will. We have not ceased praying for you, he wrote. 
and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that... Now, to be sure, just possessing knowledge for knowledge's sake is not the answer, it's not the goal. You know, for example, um, knowing what is true, knowing what a person ought to do, does not cause a person to do that. Uh, Furthermore, if a person understands what is true and and has knowledge and and a a deep and profound understanding, that could lead to the temptation of a a smug attitude, a a self-centeredness, a self-sufficiency even. No, knowledge for knowledge's sake is not good. In fact, anything good can be distorted and twisted and used for evil. But these are not Paul's concerns in Colossians. Paul does want the church to grow in its knowledge, and it's for a reason. His focus is on wanting them to be grounded, to have a foundation that's profound and deep, so they'll know what the true course is and they'll stay with it. And so it would be, dis- it would be misguided for us to dismiss the important role that knowledge plays in the Christian life. So don't miss this, his prayer. Paul wants us to know what God's will is and to grow in this. And if we know what God desires to do through Christ, if we understand what God's will is and how he has chosen to work, then we can be certain we are participating in that reliable journey to the inheritance that God has provided. But notice also, he says that this knowledge shapes how we live on the journey. We have not ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that that you may live worthily of the Lord and please Him. You're going to fulfill God's will in your life so you'll please Him in all respects. See, when Christians comprehend what God desires and what God desires and what He wants to do, and what he's doing in this world through Christ, then they also know how they should live. And notice the actions that Paul writes of those who please the Lord, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the display of all patience and steadfastness, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Wow. Paul says, if we, if we grow into a more profound understanding of God's will in all spiritual wisdom, that one of the things that's going to do is, is cause us to, to live in ways that are going to bear fruit, but, but it's also going to cause us as people who've understood what God has done and is doing, to joyfully give thanks to Him because we've understood what He's done for us in our lives. And so the very next verse, he continues. What has God done? Well, God delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It was God's will to work through Christ in rescuing us. What is God's will? For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in the Son and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself by making peace through the blood 
of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Here, here's a summary, a very concise summary of, of God's will and how he wants to work in the world. He's working through the Son, and it's reconciling all things. And if people understand God's will and have a profound understanding of it, then it's going to influence how they live. Well, what does Paul do as he opens this letter? Well, he said right here that it was God's, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. The fullness of deity, that's what God wills, dwells in the Son. But not only that, he writes about Christ being supreme over every power and authority, about using Christ in, in creation, that all things are created by him and for him, and he sustains them. He's going to say that all treasures, all riches are found in Christ, that Christ is the hope of glory. And because of this is God's desire to work through Christ, there's no chance that there can be some other competing power, some other competing roadmap, if you will, that is going to get a person better than where Christ is at. Christ is overall. If you have Christ, you have the answer. When God's people grasp how God has orchestrated the greatness of Christ, then immediately the importance of our connection with Christ becomes apparent. Christ provides everything we need. And furthermore, Paul writes, you at one time were strangers and enemies, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him. You see, neither they nor us need to flirt with any competing religious idea. Jesus is the path. A path to the inheritance that God has provided. Now, like most ministers who have, who have served for more than uh, two decades, I've heard lots of stories about angels. Uh, people have come and shared with me their experiences of, of encountering an angel. And sometimes people have brought and, and shared stories with me about messages that, that an angel gave them. Should any such message be disconcerting? Should any message, regardless of its content, cause us to change course, cause us to, to rethink what we have in Scripture? And the answer is no, because we already know the message of the Christ. We already have the message. And anything else that would call into question that disregarded because we have the message. It is Christ. The inheritance is ensured, but it's also conditional. We must not swap out Christ while journeying along with him for some other path or some other so-called enhanced, improved map. And so Paul is, is calling the church to remain in what they've originally received. That original message about Christ. If, he says, if indeed you remain in the faith, these things that Christ does for you are true for you, if you remain there, established and firm, without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. A little bit later on he will write, again pointing to the same um, desire to keep them grounded right where they're at so they won't drift away. After laying all this foundation, he says, therefore, 
You know, as a result of everything I've told you about Christ and what God is doing in his will, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. To live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and firm in your faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Well, it's all wonderful news. Christ is God's way to glory, and those who stick with Christ can be confident of their destination. They can be confident of their salvation. But there's one other question that must be answered. I mean, it's wonderful that this is reality. This is the truth about Christ. Who God has made him to be, his position, and what God is doing through Christ, that's all wonderful. But if that is not my connection... If I am not connected with Christ, then I have not yet received good news. He's good news, but if I'm not yet there, then I'm not yet on that path that Christ made possible. And so the question comes immediately after Paul has lifted up all this wonderful exaltation of Christ and what God is doing through Christ is, it's an unstated question, you know, can you know that you are connected and his answer is yes. And he wants to give assurance to this church that not only are these things about Christ true, but you can know that you are connected with him. And all those things I've told you about that inheritance and the glory, they are yours. And you can live with that confidence. So how can we be certain that all these wonderful things about Christ apply to my life? Well, Paul zeroes in on that moment of our connection with Christ to provide assurance that we are journeying with him. And to achieve this, Paul describes a moment of surgery, transformation, issuing forth in, in new life. In his words, in him, that's in Christ, you were circumcised, not, however, with a circumcision performed by human hands, but by the removal of the fleshly body. That is, through the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with Christ in baptism, you also have been raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. Well, with this text, this, this, this core text in, in the center, um, the theological center, if you will, of Colossians, there are some quick observations we should make. These verses are, are not a handbook entitled Everything You Need to Know About Baptism, uh, nor are they a handbook about everything you need to know about becoming a Christian. Paul is writing to Christians. They know how they became a Christian. So we need to leave it in its context and that, there are several contexts. The context within Colossians of, of what he, the message he's written, the context of who he's writing to, and also the context of how these verses are functioning within this letter. Paul is zeroing in on the reason that they can be certain they are connected with Christ. That everything he's just said about Christ is true for them. This one who's been filled with the fullness of, of deity, that, that, that he is theirs. They are his. This letter opens. And the, that first part of the message provides disciples with assurance and certainty. Christ is the way. 
There's no other, there's no other way, no other paths, no other additions. And then he goes on with more certainty. Yes, you are connected with Christ in these verses. Because of what happened when you were baptized. You were buried in baptism. And then you were raised up with Christ from those waters. And he says, let me tell you what happened at that time. Now notice Paul's description about baptism. He says, we've been buried with him in baptism. He'll say, we've been raised up with him. And, and that language describes the, the physical act of baptism, the, the burial in the water and the raising up. But it is, it is also, notice the language, this, this being buried and this being raised up. It's also Paul's shorthand for baptism. And sometimes in his writings, he will refer to baptism by using this language of, of burial and death with Christ and being raised with Christ without ever mentioning it, like he does in Ephesians. Other times, he will mention it like he does in, in Romans, but as he speaks of the, the, this burial and this resurrection with Christ being raised up. So this is a shorthand for Paul's way to refer to baptism. Um, but according to Paul, at baptism, Christ performed a surgery, changing who we are. Paul taught that all of us began as those who are dead in sin. That, that's our lives. We were dead in sin, and, and he characterizes this as being in this, um, being controlled with this fleshly controlled. He calls it uncircumcision. But then when someone responds to Christ by being baptized, the person is changed. The spiritually dead person is buried with Christ. And Christ performs a surgery on that person, cutting off that former sinful life. And then that person is raised up to a new life by God's power. And thus, baptism is much more than just a symbolic act. It is a moment when in faith, people trust in God's power. It's an act of faith where, where people are going to rely upon God's power and what God's power can do in their lives because Christ died for me and was raised again. And they, they, they trust in God and in Christ and respond to Him, trusting that, yes, God, He can make this change. He can take me from being someone dead and He can give me spiritual life, something that I can never do. It is a moment when Christ removes the sinful past and God grants new life and forgiveness. It describes this God's work in conversion. This is what God is doing when someone responds to the gospel. It's a moment that disciples can look back upon and say with confidence, yes, I know I belong to Christ. I know that because in baptism I relied upon Christ. I relied upon God's power and what it could do in my life. And I have been connected with Christ because of what He has done. He has given me a new life. In a world where different peddlers were hawking alternative roadmaps and alternative en enhancements toward obtaining the treasures of God, Paul says to the church, you know, we can know that we have been transformed by Christ, taken from death to life, and are traveling with Him to glory. Remember what happened back at your baptism. Now, we can graphically represent what Paul is doing in this letter. There's like some three big acts, if you will. Three dynamic 
the relationship between three big ideas that um, unfold in this letter. The content of the first one is a description of, of what God's will is to, to exalt Christ above all others and to work through Christ to bring us the hope of heaven. It lifts and exalts Christ, and this is what God wants to do. It's His will. And Paul prays that the church can have a deep understanding of what God's will is and how He's trying to work. Now, this functions as we read it. It has a function as we read that message. It tells us as Christians that we can rest assured that Jesus is the way. And because of what God is pleased to do through Christ, we can understand it's paramount that we be connected with Christ. Because that is God's will, and that's where we find God working, through Christ. And, this, and then we move into the second, the second section, smaller literarily, and, and we find furthermore that we are connected with Christ because of what happened at our baptism. And this also has a function to it as we read that message as his people. It says, yes, we can be confident that we are connected to Christ because of what God did to us when we responded to the message and were buried with him and raised up with him. And then, then this launches out into a, a giant third section in the letter, that, that final content. And Paul goes, and now let me tell you how being connected with Christ is supposed to shape how you live. If you've died with Christ... You know, if you've been buried with him, if, if you've been raised up with him, then here's what that means for your life. See, the impact of our connection with Christ, there is an impact. We are to live as those dead and risen. When Coach Popovich signed someone to the Spurs, that person becomes a part of the team. And when someone becomes a spur and they're part of the team, there are some expectations of what they're supposed to do. The, the newly signed player is expected to show up at practice. Can't stay in bed. He's got to show up at practice when practice starts. Then the newly signed player is expected that there will be um, uh, following the coach's guidelines and, and things that he's told to do, he is going to do. And he understands that. Now, as these players, and we've heard on, on uh, the sporting reporting and so forth, about how some of these players are really just so dedicated and they're working so hard and then maybe they're even working harder than all the other players and they're really, really going at it. Why are they doing that? Are they doing that to earn a spot as a member of the Spurs? No, they already are. Are they trying to become a Spur? No. But they know what it means to be a Spur and so they have given themselves to it. And they're living it out as best as they can. Well, in a very similar way, God is going to change our identity. When someone becomes a spur, they get a new identity. You're a member of the team. When God takes us and makes us new, as new creation, His people, He gives us a new identity, and now we're His. And with that new identity comes expectations of living according to who God wants his people to be. 
And so God's identity changes and impacts how we live and how we make decisions, the priorities that we have, how we handle money and time and a whole host of other things, our interactions with people, our interactions with God. And all of this, all of this activity is not trying to earn our way into God's team, for we are fully there already. But we're living out how the community is supposed to live. And if we understand God's will and have a profound understanding of it, we will understand what God is trying to do and how we are to live to work with God and maintain what God has done. We don't live by following other maps. So how are God's people to live as those who've died with Christ and been raised with Christ? How does God's team live? Well, here's a quick summary in that latter part of Colossians. Paul will say, don't let others judge you by their maps. Yeah, they may have a map that they're following and judging you that you're off track, but he says, don't worry about what they're thinking or saying about you. Don't use their maps and don't follow the rules that their maps have. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink. He'll also say, if you have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to them? That's another map. You've got Christ. You stay with that. Another implication of, of living for Christ because we've died with Him and been raised with Him. He says, we do live by focusing on what lies ahead. Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Keep thinking about things above, not things on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. He's going to say also in this letter, live in accordance with who Christ has made us to be. He's made us and given us a new identity, and now we need to live in accordance with that. And this means we need to put to death whatever is incompatible with Christ's ways. In other words, to use the Spurs illustration, if there's things that you can't do in being a spur, you get rid of it so you can be a spur and play right. I think part of one of those rules is you pass the ball and don't be a ball hog if you're a spur. Well, there's, there's things that need to be gotten rid of if we're on God's team. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with its practices and have been clothed with the new man that is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. He will talk about emphasizing those characteristics and qualities that belong to Christ. He will also go into socially specific guidelines that if we're part of God's people, then there's some social roles that, depending on who I am, is also applicable to me. So he talks about wives. He'll talk about husbands and children, fathers, slaves, and masters, and how being buried with Christ and raised with Christ is going to influence those roles where I find, might find myself. There are also some additional general guidelines about relating to God and also relating to the surrounding community. Oh, there's so much more that could be said about Colossians. Um, in the Wednesday night class, New Testament Nuggets, um, we'll be looking at some of these ideas in more detail later on in the, the winter quarter. But for the moment, an accurate overview of this letter, Paul sums it up with that opening prayer of where he's trying to get with these people. He's wanting them to stay with Christ and produce all of this 
this wonderful journey with Christ, but they're going to need to understand God's will. We have not ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the display of all patience and steadfastness, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Here at Mac, one of the messages that we get from Colossians is let's live with confidence. There's no reason for us not to be confident in living with Christ. Let's live with confidence that we are on a journey with Christ to share in the saints' inheritance. We don't need to doubt. He has done everything. He is everything that we need. No need to look elsewhere. But also, we need to realize who God has made us to be as His people. And as we understand God's will and what God is trying to do and His will for our lives, that should cause us to erupt in joyful thanksgiving to God and in living in a manner worthy of being called Christian, being called God's children, people who have been made alive and transformed by grace. It might be this evening that someone has yet not connected with Christ. Oh, someone may have, have honored Christ, um, believe for many years that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but maybe has not yet connected with Christ by acknowledging Him and being buried with Him and raised up with Him so that God's power could be at work, giving new life, forgiving, canceling all that is old and against, making one holy and blameless before God. If that's the need of anyone tonight, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.